the inaugural issue of the New Thinking Aloud magazine was just released on March 1st. You can download a free PDF copy from the New Thinking Aloud Foundation website. That's newthinkingaloud.org. You can even order a printed copy from mta-magazine.magcloud.com. Thinking Aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is science and spirituality. My guest is Mona Sobani, who is a cognitive neuroscientist and entrepreneur. She is a former research scientist and is a co-founder of Exploring Consciousness. She is author of Proof of Spiritual Phenomena, a neuroscientist discovery of the ineffable mysteries of the universe. Mona is located in Los Angeles, California. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Mona. It is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. You have a background as a cognitive neuroscientist, and in your new book, you really give a comprehensive overview of parapsychology, psi research. How did you begin exploring these phenomena? I never would have touched them, never would have delved into it, because um, I was a very scientific materialist. I mean, I still am in some ways, but, um, you know, normal scientist. I wasn't spiritual or anything, but I kind of had these, these personal experiences in my life. Um, I tell the story in the book of how my, I'm Persian. So in our, in our cultural heritage, I guess, um, there's a practice of divination, although I didn't know that's what it was called, um, to use, you know, whether it's tarot or coffee grounds or uh, really any medium. Um, you can have somebody who's a talented reader use these mediums to kind of gaze into your life, you know, and your future potentially. And my grandmother used to do this and my mom still does it. And they're both very good. And I never paid attention to it or believed in it or anything. But when I was, you know, in grad school, um, I, my mom started reading my coffee. Um, and she, I just noticed, started noticing I would take notes. Um, I started noticing that the things that she said were would come true. So she would see things in advance and they would come true, but then also that she could see these really tiny, significant, meaningful details of my life that nobody knew about that I wouldn't talk about with people. They would be like private thoughts and she would say them out loud. And I didn't know what to make of it because science couldn't explain it. Um, so I didn't even attempt. I mean, I may have thought about it a little bit, but there was, you know, I, I was busy with graduate school. I didn't have time to think about this too deeply or research it. Um, so I just kind of ignored it and it was a part of my life in the background. And, and then, you know, later and a few years ago, I had kind of big emotional events in my personal life that my, my mom had seen in the coffee and they were kind of, a, they were a tipping point for me, um, into an existential crisis. <laughs> and so at that point, when I was, you know, grappling for meaning and trying to understand uh, why we're here, um, that's when I finally turned to look at this interesting phenomena that was, you know, in my life, had been in my life for many years and was a part of an accepted part of our culture. Um, but that I had never taken seriously. So, and I did not think that anybody had studied it seriously. Uh, so I didn't think I could find answers. Um, and that's why I started, as I talk about in the book, like I kind of started my personal quest. Um, instead of going to, to search for literature, which I didn't think existed, I, what, you know, I started going to intuitives and, and like, and people who dabble in the intuitive arts to understand, is this a real phenomena? Um, or is it, you know, as neuroscience or 
materialist science would suggest that it's you've created meaning out of it that you know you've confirmation bias and all that so it, it started with um personal experience and then eventually as i got to speak to these people who are extremely intuitive um and um started reaching out and reading a little bit i realized there actually had been research done and that's when i of course i was like oh well i'm this is great. Like I can read that <laughs> if there's papers, you know, scientific papers, I can read those. So I went to investigate and find the papers and learn everything that I could. And what did you discover? That there had been a lot of research done actually, <laughs> which I was very surprised by, but that it had been studied for, you know, over a hundred years and by very serious scientists. So, um, like in neuroscience, we, um, kind of worship William James. He's a, a psychologist from early 1900s. And we always talk about William James and how great his thinking was. And then I was so surprised to learn when I was digging into this literature that he had been interested in psychic phenomena and he and spiritual and religious experiences and mystical experiences and how these things were all tied together. Um, you know, and even thinking about different models of the brain and the mind. And so I was really surprised to learn that. Um, and a lot of other really serious scientists, like, you know, physicists and Nobel Prize winners, uh, many of them were interested in this space between not only science and spirituality, but just this space of um, the mind and brain are more complicated than we understand and that maybe there's some sort of connection between um, our minds and our physical reality, right, in a way that we we in modern day science um, and modern day Western culture don't really pay attention to or take seriously. Uh, so it, it really blew my mind to really say the least. I mean, I'd never even thought of that there was any other possible way or model for reality to be, well, I guess modeled. But um, so it just kind of, yeah, I, I learned that it was uh, not a big deal. Um, <laughs> there were a lot of different theories, uh, and that really we don't know what's going on. Um, and in fact, we're ignoring a lot of really interesting, uh, data just because we think it's, you know, unconventional in the modern day. Being a neuroscientist who has been trained from that more materialistic perspective, what was that experience for you like to have your mother read your coffee grounds and then for you to discover that there's actual research that verifies these phenomena? Um, it was a pretty profound moment, I think, because I think in my mind it was kind of fun, you know, and just a way to make sense of life. Um, and then you know, suddenly when I found that this is actually a whole thing, right? Like this is a whole field of research. This is so much broader than even research or science. Like that, you know, these, this, um, this topic really spans everything, cosmology, philosophy. Um, it's the way we view the world. It's the way we engage with the world. It's the way we live our lives. Uh, you know, I think that I was just really didn't know what to think. I mean, it was very shocking and took a while to, reconcile, I think, which, which is why I spun into a, a new crisis from my existential crisis into a new crisis, um, which I describe in, in the book. But yeah, I think it's just really shocking. I think, um, uh, I can't, uh, you know, emphasize enough how we get so we get stuck in the ways that we, in our perspectives, right? We get stuck and used to our perspectives and we think that any other way is not possible, right? And I was definitely in that boat. So to to find not only, and personal experience is one thing, you know, our culture tends to discount personal experience. So I'm sure in my mind, I was like, yeah, I've had these experiences, but maybe I'm mistaken. Um, but then to have scientific research and people from so many different fields coming to the same conclusion and having really open conversations. I think that, that it just, you know, shook me and, and thought and shook me out of the box and was like, you probably don't know everything and you probably have to open your mind and get a little more curious um, and stay open-minded. And um, that 
I was not really the kind of person to do that at that point. I was much more uh, arrogant and certain that I knew what I needed to know. So that was a huge um, challenge, I would say. Mm-hmm. Why do you think so many materialistic scientists are not as open to this kind of research and phenomena as you have been? I think there's a number of reasons. I think if I just put myself back in my old shoes, I think, first of all, you grow up in a society that constantly makes fun of it and doesn't take it seriously at all. You know, in mainstream media, um, in polite conversation, it's just not really talked about or accepted. I mean, you know, depending on who, who you hang out with. But I think the general consensus is that it's, you know, it's all, it's been proven. That was something else that was, that I just became really aware of is there's this sentiment or this false um, belief that these things have been thoroughly investigated and debunked and that we are at a place now where we know for certain that, um, you know, these things don't exist and that we, we were wrong, um, that we hoped that they were right in the past and that we didn't have the scientific tools to investigate them like we do now, but now we know. And so I think we all kind of grow up in that, in the Western culture with, with that belief. And then especially when you go into science, I mean, you know, there's no, <laughs> there's no talk of that. There's no talk of spirituality or, um, any kind of odd, uh, you know, unconventional findings. So it's not even on your radar, really. You know, it's just, it's not even part of your life until it is, right? Until you have a personal experience and suddenly you're like, wait a minute. Um, I have no framework for this. I have no explanation for this. Uh, how do I explain it? And so I think a lot of, I think a lot of scientists are, we're just in the same boat. Like we don't, we're not aware of the research. If you haven't had a personal experience and you're, and you don't know about the research and then you grow up in this culture, you, why would you ever entertain it? You know, you have no reason to entertain it. On top of that, they're so busy, like they can barely keep up with, with their own work and reading that there's, there's not a lot of extra time to, oh, let me go, you know, read a whole nother field of literature. Um, and I think it also, their whole identities are built around and I say this as someone who, you know, this was, I'm talking about me. I'm not attacking them. This is really all about me. Like our, my whole identity was around being this smart person who understood how the world works. That's what we believe we do in science. And, um, so to have to suddenly have that foundation shook or cracked and you're like, wait, I don't know, you know, maybe I don't know everything and maybe our tools are not enough. Then it's a real threat to your ego and your identity. Um, and, it's, it's, it's hard to deal with. And then there's the very real, of course, concern that if you come out with interest in these things, that you'll be, there's definitely stigma, you know, that you'll be not taken seriously, that it'll be career suicide. <laughs> Those things are real threats. So, uh, you know, it's already hard to get money and jobs in science. So why would you risk it? And yet there's a whole, like you say, field of research that that you came to the conclusion really validates and support these phenomena. Yeah. And I think like, I think, I think what's difficult about science is that there's always studies that support something and then studies that disprove something for every, you know, for even for literally everything. <laughs> there's nothing that we know with absolute certainty. We never say proof, even though proof is in the title of my book. Um, the publisher chose that because <laughs> scientists never say we have proof of anything. Um, so, you know, I think that, but we can say there's overwhelming evidence for, right. And I think that that's what I found when I was looking at this, or I thought that if I looked at the literature, when I found out there was a literature that it, it was going to be poorly designed studies, you know, bad statistics, um, not well controlled, low sample size, all those things. But when I read them, there were so many studies, <laughs> like way more participants than we use in brain imaging. Um, there were really sound scientific protocols, like way more sound than regular psychology or neuroscience use as someone who has done that research can tell you, I can tell you. Um, and they use some of the same protocols that we even use in neuroscience and psychology. And so I was just really impressed and, um, and it was just not what I expected. I expected it to be 
poorly done science and it wasn't. And so I thought you can't, um, you can't dismiss these findings and take our normal science findings, uh, you know, at this, at their word, because they're equal almost, at, you know, in statistical methods and experimental methods. So what do we do? I mean, either the whole method and our stats are wrong and we have to throw out all our, our all our science too, or we take these phenomena a little more seriously. So, uh, I mean, that's the impasse that I came to. And, you know, I still will, I try to stay open now and say, it's possible. I don't, based on what I have read, I don't think it, this is true, but it's possible that all of science and stats is wrong, right? Maybe there's no phenomena at all. I don't know. I mean, but I try to stay open to both sides because <laughs> we don't really know. You yourself had personal experiences with your mother reading your coffee grounds on Sundays. Can you share a story or two that really grabbed your attention and let you know that something was going on? Or was it just slowly year after year, just so many experiences that validated that your mother was really getting information that was from maybe the collective consciousness or who knows? One of the big ones that I talk about in the book was, um, it was a, uh, the death of someone I knew. Someone I knew was was killed. But before it happened, um, for weeks in advance, she, my mom, who normally doesn't even give bad news. <laughs> I mean, if she sees it, she'll, you know, in the cup, she'll try to just say, you know, don't be, a, you know, it's not going to be a big deal. Um, she tries to kind of make, so give it a soft landing. But, uh, this, like six weeks in advance, she saw it in my, and I go home, I would go home on the weekends, every weekend. So for six weeks, six weeks in advance, I would go home every week and we'd have coffee. And then she kind of said to me, you know, in a serious tone, like, I think I need to tell you that you're going to get some bad news. And, and I was really taken aback because her tone was so serious. And I'm like, what, like, what is going to happen? And but she wouldn't tell me what she saw because she didn't, she was like, what if it's not true? What if it doesn't happen? You know, who knows? I don't want to, she, she didn't want to put it in my mind. So she didn't say that, but she just kept saying for weeks, she she would just like nod her head. Yep, 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 yep. She's like, mm -hmm, okay. So just so you know, you may be getting like, again, just bad news and just, you know, and then she would turn into a mom and kind of, you know, talk to me about <laughs> how sometimes we hear difficult things in life, but we'll make it through. And I'm like, what the hell is going to happen? <laughs> and she did tell me it was um like a little far removed from my life so that it wasn't like, you know, somebody that I live with or somebody or a family member or something like that. Um, and then what happened was somebody I knew, uh, one of our professors at USC was killed by one of the students um, and was someone who had helped me with one of my dissertation experiments who I knew. So it was, uh, it was a really upsetting and difficult uh, news. But the and when I called my mom after I found out, I was like, I, I think I know what the bad news is. Um, and I told her what happened and she said, yeah, it was a death, but I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to tell you, um, ahead of time because <laughs> it would already be bad enough when it happened. So she's like, I just, um, she's like, but it was, a, I saw very clearly a death. Um, and then that's why that shook me so much because I couldn't understand. Usually it would, her readings would be small things like make sure you don't, um, lose money. You know, it looks like there's a possibility of you losing money. So make sure you pay all, all your bills. Um, and then, you know, something would happen. Like I, I don't know, the, you know, DWP bill doesn't arrive in the mail and I have to be aware of that <laughs> to like go pay it online or something. Um, and there were other little things, but nothing like this, nothing like that, which was a very big life thing, right? I'm like, how can somebody's death, um, be known in advance? And that's why I, it spun me into, is there such thing as fate and destiny or, or is it just that the information is available in some way? But what does it mean? You know, it's hard to wrap your mind around when you come from a scientific materialist perspective. Um, it still is hard if I put myself back in those shoes, like six weeks in advance, you know, and it's not like the person had a known illness where, where we're expecting them, you know, to pass away at some point. Um, it was completely out of the blue. So and unpredictable. Um, but yeah, some of the others, um, she's seen, uh, 
I'm trying to think of other, there would be things like, you know, I think one time months in advance, she was like, Oh, I think you're going to like move. Like there'll be some moving at work. And I was like, no, we're not, we're not moving. We don't move. We have a lab, you know? And then a few months later, uh, we found out that we were moving to a new building. So it would be things like that, that I, um, she would say that at the time, a lot of times it would, they would seem wrong because I wouldn't be expecting them. Um, and it w- and they wouldn't be things that I was planning on doing. So it's not like she could plant it in my head and then I do it. You know, it would be things that were out of my control that I wasn't expecting that would then happen. And those were the things that really, um, you know, got my interest, kind of piqued my interest. For those who may not be familiar, can you describe that process of reading Coffee Grounds? Sure. It's So it's a... Um, it's not American coffee. It's Armenian coffee. It's like a thicker kind of coffee where you leave the grounds in the cup and you drink it in a small cup, not like a big mug. And usually it's a cup and a saucer. You drink it, but you leave the grounds at the bottom because that would be gross to drink them. And then you flip the cup, you let it dry and the grounds kind of just, you know, scatter as they will in the cup. And once it's dried, you can have a reader pick it up and look for pictures. And my mom, says that it's very archetypal and symbolic. So, you know, there's symbols for everything. Like, um, I think if you see a snake, it could be an enemy or it could be money. Um, I think a mouse is like losing money. <laughs> I'm trying to remember some of them. Um, an elephant is a contract. Um, and so she learned this from her mother, uh, and, you know, pass it down to me too. But, um, it's basically, she said, you look for these figures, these shapes that, that come out to you in the cup and the information that kind of just comes from it. And then you look for links between the pictures and you can create stories. Um, so, and you, like, as I, I mentioned, kind of there's things that are like inside your life and outside your life. So there, there's sort of like some art to where the grounds are in the cup when they dry. Mm-hmm. I recall you mentioned in your book about you were dating a man at the time whose eyelashes you really liked. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. That one really, oh, that's true. I forgot about that one. That one really shook me. It was so funny. It was like this, I was dating this guy and he had really long, beautiful eyelashes. And I never told anyone. I just noticed it was like a personal thing. And he, no one else noticed. I think after this incident with the coffee, I told my best friend and she was like, his eyelashes? She was like, does he even have eyelashes? Like she didn't, you know, it wasn't like a known thing about him, but my mom was reading my coffee and she said like, oh, it looks like there's a man in your life. And she kind of like described his personality and stuff. But then she said, and he has really long eyelashes. (laughs) Just thought that was just, I just thought it was so weird and so funny because it was only significant to me, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it was so significant to me, but it showed up in the cup where she picked up on it and it was, and she didn't know him. You know, I, I hadn't told her how I was dating anyone. So she didn't know what he looked like. <laughs> it was really funny. What have you discovered or what sort of ongoing conclusions have you drawn about how your mother is able to gain this information? I think it just comes. I, um, I really couldn't understand it before, but since the, this, since this whole thing happened to me, um, I have, I've, I've learned, uh, how to read tarot and I've dabbled in some of the other intuitive arts and, I've paid more attention to my dreams now because I've always had precognitive dreams, but I just ignored them. You know, when I became a full-blown materialist scientist, I was like, oh, it's just coincidence. But, um, they really weren't. They're, they're, they're precognitive. So now I keep track of those and now I understand it better. Um, you know, it just kind of, I mean, it's weird. I still don't fully understand it. So when I'm reading tarot for someone and they'll be like, you know, oh my God, this is so, crazy. Um, but when I'm saying it, like it just, I don't, I don't even know what I'm saying, you know, like I'm just reading the cards, but, um, and I actually asked my mom that before I even started dabbling myself and she doesn't understand it herself. You know, she doesn't really sit and think about it either. I don't think she's 
it's just something she does for fun. It's, it's not something she thinks about or worries about or <laughs> analyzes at all. Um, and sometimes I would, she doesn't even realize she thinks she's just reading the images, right? Just like I described to you, like you see a snake or a rabbit. She thinks it's technical. So she's like, oh, I'm just telling you what I see in the cup. But I do think there's some element of, um, uh, something just from her mind. Um, <laughs> I don't know how else to explain it. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the connection of the oneness of which we are all a part and entanglement. Yeah, she taps into, I think it's something we tap into um, when you're in kind of a special, for me anyway, it's like a special meditative state um, or kind of, you know, a letting go state where, and that's kind of what it's like when my mom's reading, she's, you know, just kind of gazing <laughs> into the cup and, and images just come up. Yeah. And in your research, you show that people who are able to do this often have to decrease the analytical overlay, the decrease the static and the noise in the mind to be able to access more of this information. Right. That's what I found from the research that I read, the, um, I think it was the SRI research or I don't know, it's just any kind of psychic phenomena research. They, when they interviewed the intuitives, you know, and we're kind of trying to understand the physical process. Um, I think it was Ingo Swan who used that term, um, and sort of described that you have to quiet the mind. Otherwise there's all this like, thinking and memory and analysis, which is our normal day-to-day, -day, you know, left brain kind of fit regular mode of living. Um, and you kind of have to quiet that down to access uh, something else, you know, the, whatever it is, the field or, <laughs> um, or the oneness, as you mentioned. Um, but it's like, it's there, but it's like our, analytical mind kind of overlays onto it and makes it hard to hear and access. So anyway, that's how they describe it. Reading coffee grounds or tarot may be a way of focusing the mind or consciousness to receive that information. Yes. Yeah. I do think it goes into some sort of receptive mode. So you as a neuroscientist who has studied the brain a lot of the neuroscience that you are well-versed in looks at the physiology of the brain. How do you sort of marry consciousness with that in light of what you have discovered that you put in your own book? <laughs> yes. Well, this is what I grappled with a lot in the beginning of the journey. And at first I was very dead set on understanding the physical mechanism. I was like, there's got to be information. It's got to be coming in from somewhere. It's going through some sort of brain structure. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, I, now I don't even, I care less about that. But at the time I, I had to know because that was the framework that I understood, you know, reality and uh, the brain. That's how I understood things. So I had, it had to come in that way. Um, and especially since I didn't encounter until a little bit later um, in the journey encounter this idea that um, that something other than physical matter could be the foundation of the universe. You know, to me, I thought that that was established and settled and uh, we were all in agreement on that. So when I started branching out and if you stay in the neuroscience literature this is what I try to really describe to people. If you stay in just the neuroscience or even scientific literature, you don't encounter these ideas. It's like once you go out into physics or um, philosophy um, and then spirituality, of course, then you start to encounter and learn, realize that we don't, we move forward with the presumption that the basis of reality is physical matter. Um, but as we're learning every day, if you go <laughs> to like a physics journal, there's, you know, now they're saying space time is irrelevant and they're saying, um, particles are not really particles. It's all vibrating energy, um, that connects everything. And so you start to realize, oh, like even that presumption assumption is not, um, settled. And it, it's possible that something else is the foundation of realities such as consciousness, which when I initially encountered this idea, 
it did not make sense to me at all. I couldn't accept it. Um, and it took a long time to open up to it. But when you realize, if you think of consciousness as, I don't know, an energy or a plasma or who knows, whatever, something else, um, and that it could be the basis because we can't, you know, as one of the famous quantum physicists says, you can't get behind consciousness. Like there's nothing behind it. Um, so once you start to open to that, it, it kind of switches, it changes, uh, you know, your, my focus on the brain and the mechanism kind of is not as important anymore. Um, but I think that now as I'm, and I put one of these papers in the book, but we're starting to see in peer reviewed scientific journals, other models of consciousness put forward, um, like that it's possible that, you know, typical neuroscience, conventional neuroscience thinks that consciousness comes from the brain. So if you die of the brain, something happens to the brain, there's no more of your consciousness, your personality, you're gone. It, but, you know, in these other models, it's possible that your brain is just like a receiver um, or something that consciousness is filtered through. If consciousness, let's say, was the foundation of reality that, you know, it interacts with this physical system in some way and comes to life. And we're starting to see these kinds of theories in peer-reviewed scientific journals now as people try to model, like, um, account for more types of evidence than just, especially with psychedelics making such a, having such a renaissance right now. There's a, there's a lot of different fields coming together to explain these experiences. And the, and I keep telling people the only thing neuroscience can do is describe the physiology. All we do is describe what's happening in the brain and then we can create theories for what we think, but really we're just describing things. We're describing how, what parts of the brain are active when a task, you know, is being done or when you take a certain drug, but it doesn't explain why that's happening, why it leads to a certain experience and not another. And we can't answer those questions with the, the tools that we have in science or neuroscience right now. And we need to collaborate with other fields to get to those answers, like especially with philosophers and um, anthropologists and religious thought, the humanities, basically. So you are a real scientist in that sense that you're open to all the possibilities and looking at the experience, the evidence, and even being on the forefront, perhaps, of further research. Yeah, I think that that's the, I mean, on this journey, I spent a lot of time thinking about what is science, <laughs> because, right, this, this, um, you know, I had this mind crunch going on of, oh, I'm a scientist or you know, science doesn't believe in this, or this isn't acceptable. This is unscientific, um, which is something scientists like to say. And so I really, uh, you know, stopped and thought about it. I looked up the definition of science. I looked up the history of science. And it used to be that science, it was like a natural science. It was natural philosophy, right? It wasn't what we use today in science is the scientific method, but it we didn't, it didn't used to be that way. It used to be much more inclusive. Now there's such specialization in each field. Um, and we'd never talk to other fields. So we never know what's going on. Even in neuroscience, cognitive neuroscientists never talk to molecular neuroscientists. Um, so there's so much specialization that there, there there's, you know, not very many great efforts to pull it all together and have a great, you know, grand unifying theory. But I think that's what, ne that's what's needed. And I think that's what, where science, if you go started, <laughs> we should, you know, if we're trying to understand reality, like you can't understand it with any one field. We really cannot, even with physics, it's not enough. Yeah. Well said. You yourself took LSD as part of your research <laughs> in this area. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got really curious about psychedelics because I was learning about psychic phenomena and like paranormal things. And I was interviewing all these different people for the, I don't actually, I wasn't writing a book at this point. This was just my personal project. So I was just interviewing people and a few of them mentioned to me, um, you know, have you looked into psychedelics? Do you know that a lot of really paranormal and odd things can happen on psychedelics? And I was, I had never thought about psychedelics ever in my life when they said this and I didn't see how that was possible, but I went to read, that was, you know, a, another deep dive I went into and 
I was, you know, again, blown away. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. First of all, I was like, psychedelics are super healing. Who knew? No one ever talks about that. All we talk about is how they melt your brain. Um, or that was the impression that I had or that they make you hallucinate. But it turns out that they're super healing for people. Um, and, you know, have been used for thousands of years by a lot of different cultures. But then what they told me was right that a lot of cultures use psychedelics for, um, you know, communing with the spirit world for tapping into the, the thing that connects us all, you know, looking into the future, getting answers into someone's illness. Um, so it's, it was commonly used in that way. And then also in Western, Westerners, you know, in the sixties and seventies and the, even the fifties, when they started to bring psychedelics into the culture, and, you know, psychiatrists were studying it very seriously uh, as a cure for multiple things. It's pretty well known in that literature, if you look at it, that it was so common for their subjects to have telepathy experiences or precognitive experiences, like in the sessions, that it was just common. Like it was part of the part of it. And it became unexceptional after a time because it was just so common. So I didn't uh, know any of that, um, but I wanted to, I wanted to try, uh, yeah, they, they, they seemed like really interesting substances. So I tried, tried LSD, but I didn't have any, um, I didn't have a paranormal experience, but I, I did feel, you know, the oneness and the connectedness and overwhelming love. And I will say about psychedelics that I think, I think that they, you know, I, I I just to caution it, you know, I'm not, I don't encourage people to do them. I think they're very serious. I think there can be very serious repercussions. And the reason is because they expand your understanding of what is possible in the human experience. And I know that sounds so vague, but it's like you have this everyday consciousness of I wake up, I drink my coffee, I think about my things to do, I do my work. And then when you take a psychedelic, you're suddenly aware of all these different ways of being and being alive. And it's, it's so, it's really beautiful and very healing. And, uh, I think they're fantastic. I think honestly, but again, I don't encourage people to do them because if they took them, you're saying that there could, be benefits, but also there could be, uh, unforeseen repercussions. Yeah. They, you know, they're very sensitive to set and setting as everyone talks about the, the, the substances make you, um, very sensitive to everything. So like your emotions are sensitive, you're sensitive to light <laughs> and sound and um, to other people's emotions. And so you have to be in a safe space where you feel very comfortable. And even, you know, like for me, dim lights, nice music, um, because so for example, one time I, my friend had a movie on when we tried shrooms and I felt like the highest high and the lowest lows of emotion while watching the movie. And it was not pleasant. So I decided no more movies on psychedelics. Um, so you have to be in a very, you know, safe setting. And then I think also, um, there's a lot of preparation that goes into it, you know, um, uh, because you may encounter parts of yourself that you didn't know existed. And then you'll have to deal with that psychologically. Um, and then, you know, just you might if you're a materialist and you experience oneness or you see a spirit or you have a telepathic moment and you come back and you're not prepared for that, which happens to a lot of people. A lot of people come back off a psychedelic trip and they were atheists and they're suddenly not because they encountered God, you know, but those are life changing, very serious existential things that can happen to you that, you know, are may ultimately be good, but some of them are very, can be very challenging. So it needs a whole ecosystem of support and a lot of preparation and a lot of integration after. I mean, they are not to be taken lightly. Having a guide assist may be beneficial. And there is research being done on these psychedelics for all the reasons that you mentioned to assist people with their own consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. They put you, and just from a more, um, psychological or healing or neuroscience perspective, they allow your brain to become a little more 
um, plastic and it opens up perspectives to you. And a lot of humans problems are just because we think in certain ways, right? Like you have this story about yourself and who you are in relation to other people. And you can't get out of that story. And psychedelics allow you in sometimes in some ways with preparation to break out of that narrative and see things from a new perspective, finally, and then come back with this new story. Um, and so that's why they're very healing. And they also allow easier access to a subconscious material. So, you know, our brains, you know, have a lot of things recorded from our past that it tries to keep away from our conscious mind because it wants to protect us from pain because you you know you might have a bad story about yourself from childhood or something um so it keeps it out of your consciousness and if you can't access it then you can't work on it right and you can't resolve it and psychedelics for some reason allow more access to that they kind of open that door and allow things to come out that are are hard to access and otherwise because your conscious brain is like no 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 we don't we don't have to look at that. <laughs> right. And it kind of, it can blow the door open for people when they may not be entirely ready for that. Exactly. And so if you're not ready for that and you don't have someone to support you or ways to integrate it, it can be very challenging. We agree. It seems that there's more going on than, than just the physical brain. If we were to go ahead and say the brain is maybe a reducing valve, it still is, can be helpful to understand what's happening from that physiological perspective. What do you understand is happening from that neuroscientist perspective of when someone is taking LSD, for example? Nobody really knows. I've been following the literature. I mean, there's a few different theories, but, and this is actually goes back to what I was saying earlier about how um, scientific studies, oh, because the samples they use are never identical. Sometimes the methods they use are never identical. They always get these like varying results. But I can speak generally that um, one theory I think is that this was the first one put forward. There's a there's a brain network called the default mode network, which is active when you're kind of like in default mode, like not when you're not doing much or you're not engaged in a task. And it's thought to be involved in like, you know, self kind of um, definition of the self, your sense of self, your sense of ego, uh, your focus on yourself. And they've shown in medita meditators, um, people who are very experienced in meditation, you see a dampening of default mode, which means less focus on the self. And with when you're comparing that to pheno phenomenology of meditation, right, you have this oneness that's kind of how they explain it. So they saw something similar with psychedelics initially, um, which is interesting because psychedelics, when you take it, there's so much going on that people initially thought it's a, there must be so much activity in the brain, right? Like your visual cortex, your, your emotions are amplified, like everything is amplified. So they thought there's more activity, but they actually initially found there was less activity in a lot of regions, which is counterintuitive and including the default mode network, which that did make sense because it is a less of a focus on yourself and more of a, you know, feeling a oneness with everything. Like the boundaries of your perception are broadened. So there's less of a distinction between what is me and what is you and what is me and what is the couch. Um, so that's one. And then I think there's another theory um, that just about entropy in the brain, which is kind of disorder that it, uh, reduces or the, the, the entry is um, affected when you take a psychedelic such that there's, there's more disorder. And that's with psychedelics, the, as I mentioned, the psychological thing is the perception is blown open and you can see new perspectives and structurally or physically you actually, the brain is literally connecting with other parts. Regions are connecting with other parts they don't usually connect with, which is why it's like you can feel someone's thought or feel a color or taste a scent or whatever, because the, you know, parts of the, the nor normally are not connected, connect. Um, and so there's this like sudden, you know, people different, they're all like suddenly just in conversation. The whole brain is in conversation, whereas normally they each have their own, you know, like, uh, area and they're like, we got, we got our tasks. This is our patterns of thinking. This is what we know. And then when you take a psychedelic, it's like everything just talks to each other and it's like, whoa. And when you come back, the brain, it's like I said, it's more plastic. So it, it, it can structurally change to support the new perspectives that you came out with. Do you engage in a meditation practice? Oh yeah. Yes. Even before this, 
uh, crisis. I was meditating every morning. It was a good way to get ready for the day. Now I, now I spend a lot more time, <laughs> a lot more time meditating, uh, in the morning and in the evening, just cause it's a nice way to, I don't know, just not think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of get in tune <laughs> with my body and, um, I've been doing a lot of that lately actually is, uh, reading somatic psychology and that kind of stuff of, you know, listening to your body, um, and identifying sensations and how they relate to your emotions. So I've been doing a lot of that lately. So it's been very interesting. Psychedelics have been getting more attention as well as meditation and certain people may gravitate toward one or the other for various reasons. Being a neuroscientist and what you know about the literature, how would you say those two compare to each other as far as how they can be beneficial to someone? I think they're both great. I think meditation is a great everyday tool. Um, psychedelics are not an everyday thing, even though microdosing is becoming popular. But even if you microdose, you don't normally take it every day um, so that your brain doesn't get used to it and stop producing its own <laughs> chemicals. Um, I think that, but you would never take high dose psychedelics every day. They're, they're just, that would not, you wouldn't be a functioning human. So I think that, um, I think meditation is a great tool for, for me anyway, this is how I approach it. For me, it's a great everyday tool to like tap into myself, to tap into something greater, to go tap into a flow, you know, a, like a, just a letting go of boundaries. Um, and psychedelics, I think, honestly, I love them the most for their healing effects. I think that they provide a very nice bridge between psychology and neuroscience, um, you know, kind of bridging why, us trying to answer the question of why do they work and heal people the way they do is forcing us neuroscientists to talk to psychologists um, and kind of understand why that works. So I, I love most the mo thing I love most about them is their healing potential. But also as a neuroscientist, um, I, I have to say I've done, you know, some of the trips I've done, you come back and you can't believe that any neuroscientist hasn't or everyone hasn't done the psychedelic and is studying the brain and reality because you're, it's like we, we are only looking at one fourth or less of reality and human experience. And we've modeled our whole, um, all of our theories around that. And when you do a psychedelic, like it's like, there's so much more that we're not modeling or exploring. There's, there's a lot we don't know. Mm -hmm. What were your spiritual or religious beliefs before you had your own existential crisis and took a deep dive into psi phenomena and parapsychology? And where is your own spiritual or religious beliefs, where are they now for you? Oh, I was not spiritual or religious. Actually, I was anti all those things when I was um, before this. I just wasn't, I didn't need it. I didn't ever spend much time thinking about it. Um, I think I subscribe to the idea that it's all nonsense, that it's an idea created for humans to help cope with life. But um, but through all of this exploration, I've come to, uh, realize that that's a very narrow, <laughs> uneducated kind of theory, actually, because, uh, I, and again, uh, psychedelics are actually a great example of this. One thing that interested me about them, uh, but it's not just psychedelics. It could be, you know, some people have mystical experiences, um, in meditation or spontaneously, but if you, have that kind of mystical experience in a psychedelic where it's like you lose your sense of yourself and you become everything. Um, and sometimes you, you know, encounter something people who are atheists come out of it and use the words sacred and divine because that's what it feels like. And to me, that is one of the most important questions <laughs> that we could ask is, you know, because I think science tends to say you, if you come, you have these, um, your, per, you know, your perception box, what you consider. So a Westerner who's an atheist who goes in to have an experience like that 
shouldn't necessarily come out using those words because they're not cued. They're not primed, right? Those words are not, it's, they're not religious. It's not on their minds every day. They, they don't believe in it. It shouldn't be. So I think that's interesting. And I think it points to um, deeper questions about our reality, especially since you see very common language used um, coming out of those experiences, but not, as I mentioned, not just psychedelics, you know, any kind of mystical experience or near death experience. I think you find very similar language and that makes, you know, I think that just points to a question of what is this underlying commonality that arises through certain human experiences. Um, so, I mean, because of that, because of all of that and the literature and all the things that I read, I, I, um, open to the possibility that there could be something. I mean, I do think now that there is a spiritual or mystical dimension to the universe. I, you know, I mean, I try not to believe anything and I try to stay open because I always understand that I haven't read everything in the world, right? I don't have all of the data to definitively say, but based on what the data I have, you know, that's where I'm leaning towards right now. But, you know, I could always get more data and change my mind. But I, I do think that experiences like that, like when you have a human coming out of a profound experience like that, and they're not primed to use that kind of language. Um, I think it's a really interesting question, you know, to ask, what are they encountering? Well, in the world's indigenous cultures, back to the beginning of humanity, and maybe even before, have all embraced some type of connection to something greater, a divinity, a oneness. And that seems like a fair amount of data as well. Yes, I agree. Yes, totally. And that was another thing that convinced me. I have like a long list of things that convinced me, but that was another thing. It was like, oh my gosh, these have been used across, you know, cultures, continents, time, millennia. I mean, um, this is a it's a core part of being human that we've forgotten about. And I think that, I think that's where I stand now is, you know, I mean, I embrace my spirituality. I think one of the most difficult things for me was realizing that spirituality was valuable because I didn't think it was valuable before. <laughs> so realizing that it's valuable and, um, you know, and because of that, I've been looking at, and I'm not the only one, there seems to be a cultural, uh, kind of move in that direction because I've read a few books by a few psychologists or psychiatrists that I follow and that, you know, in their newest books, they're including a discussion of psychedelics and indigenous cultures and spirituality and how it ties back to our minds, bodies and health. And I think that, uh, I think there's a very real link. Actually, literally there's been <laughs> the last year, there were some um, articles published in medical journals, big ones that showed that if you comparing groups with chronic illness, you know, if you look at spirituality as a factor, the ones who had spiritual beliefs and had, I, I don't know if they looked at if they had community support or if it was just beliefs, because I know that's kind of a mitigating factor, but um, that they, their outcomes on their chronic illness were better. And I think that there's a lot of other studies like that, that just show when you have meaning and purpose and spirituality in your life, um, that you see better outcomes. And I, again, I think there's a cultural movement, like it's kind of coming into the cultural zeitgeist, the consciousness, because I see it in multiple fields coming up of like, it's actually valuable and not just valuable, but it's good for your health because what's valuable to you is good to your health. <laughs> what gives you meaning and purpose? It makes you healthy. Definitely. Yeah. The power of belief can greatly impact the choices we make in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do you feel that science and spirituality can coexist? Yeah, I definitely do. I, um, initially, you know, they were so separate in my mind, but the more that I thought about it, um, and started flipping my worldview, I, I just, I just didn't see how they can be separate. Actually, I think that science is the scientific method. It's the way that we're choosing to examine and observe and measure the physical world. But, um, I think that there, if, and this goes into a whole philosophical thing, but, if there was a, 
a spiritual dimension, let's say, uh, it must interact with the physical dimension if they're separate. I mean, it may be that consciousness is all there is. So, you know, we haven't settled that debate. I don't know what the, you know, foundation of reality really is, but there's, we should be exploring those different ideas. And I think that if we are even aware of it, then it must be intersecting our reality, meaning that you know, it, it must interact with science too, or we can measure it. Like there's definitely overlap. So I don't, um, and I think that I, so I also, I held a, uh, a social at one of the biggest neuroscience conferences in November for neuroscience and spirituality. And I thought no one was going to come. I was like, we're going to be, um, tar and feathered, but we had 50 scientists show up who were so excited to be there and to talk about spirituality or anomalous phenomena, precognitive dreams, reincarnation, um, all of it. And, you know, some of the questions that we heard was exactly what I was saying of all we do in neuroscience is describe. We describe physiology, we describe mechanisms. And, you know, for a lot of the younger ones, they were kind of saying, you know, when, when we have five cells and like one dies and one doesn't, you know, what's behind that, like really behind it. Um, or when, when things are equal and, and something different happens, or we observe something unexpected, you know, there are things behind the descriptions and mechanisms of science that we, like I mentioned, we can't answer in science with our tools we, because they're bigger questions. They're philosophical questions or, you know, um, like questions about the nature of reality, um, that we don't address. And, I was starting to hear those questions come from them of what are the, you know, the deeper, the deeper, deeper, deeper questions behind the mechanisms of the statistics. Um, they were curious in that. So I think it's already there in a lot of scientists. So that's why I, I, I'm trying to encourage, uh, scientists to come out and be interested in this stuff so we can talk about these things and, you know, look at the evidence and maybe think of new theories, but I definitely think they should it should be in a space together. Mm -hmm. You describe in your book that science is a cult. <laughs> yeah, that's, and at that social that we had, somebody else said that um, completely independently of I, me, of me saying it or, or, or them knowing that I used that terminology in my book. It was funny. It is kind of a cult. I mean, I think social groups are cults, all of them in a way. So it's just in that way, another social group, but it can be culty, you know, it could be us versus them. And, uh, that's why it's hard to be open. Um, and it, because it's like this sort of, um, it's built into us, unfortunately in humans, right? This, this kind of social group cohesion thing. So, um, it, it can be culty. It, and I definitely felt that way you know, when I was coming up against this initially, I thought, but I'm a scientist. And that's why uh, eventually I had to let go of uh, identity, right? And uh, just the whole idea of loosening all of all of my boundaries, right? Boundaries around identity, boundaries around my social groups or my ideas around these things and just kind of loosen them. But it's not an easy exercise. Um, you know, it's, it's, it takes effort and it can be challenging, but yeah, I mean, science, just like any other social group is kind of culty. It sounds like you're seeing some possible transformations in that area. I mean, I hope so. And I hope to facilitate more because I think, I do think scientists are very insulated, you know, I mean, again, as many social groups are, but you know, we don't, um, converse with historians a lot or anthropologists <laughs> or philosophers. Um, and I think it would benefit them to do so. But yeah, I think that just branching out, um, I think there's a, there's definitely a desire for it. Um, so for example, we're from that social that I organized, uh, one of the participants wanted is organizing a neurospirituality retreat at the University of P Puget Sound and we're helping them kind of facilitate it but they really wanted it to be not just neuroscientists, you know, and they're inviting some of their religious scholar, religious thought scholars, um, and philosophers and whatnot to the meeting so that we can have, you know, diversity of thought and perspectives. 
um, so that we can have really interesting conversations, not just a bunch of scientists talking to each other. Yeah. It's great to hear that some of those boundaries are being broken down. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, and we're, we're not the only ones doing it. I mean, there's, I think there's other efforts, but I definitely think there can be more. Mm -hmm. How have your colleagues received your transformation and what you've written? Uh, it's, it's mostly been positive. Uh, I think you don't, it's, um, when I was nervous about the book coming out, I spoke to some other scientists who, uh, you know, had normal, I don't even have, I don't, I never wanted to be in academia and write grants, so I'm not. Um, but I spoke to other scientists who were in academia, but who had, you know, written books about consciousness being fundamental and talked about anomalous phenomena. And I would ask, you know, ask them, like, how do you deal with it? And a lot of them told me, they're like, first of all, no one reads your book. So don't worry. Like your colleagues are not going to read your book. They don't have time. <laughs> no one even knows what you're talking about. Um, he's like, it's rarely an issue. The people who aren't interested, they're like, they won't listen. They won't read. You know, it's, it's, it's actually not as much of a problem as you think it is. Um, and that has kind of been the case. So, but it's also been, uh, very encouraging to have, I've had a lot of scientists or engineers or, uh, reach out to me and say, you know, like, I thank you for writing this because I've always wondered, you know, I always think about, is there more? And I've had experiences and, um, you know, I never felt comfortable or sure that anyone else in a position similar to mine experience these things are felt this way or thought this way. So I think that there's a lot of people who in secret <laughs> are curious and want to talk about this stuff. And we just haven't been able to do that. And how has it transformed your life personally, and maybe even professionally? Well, personally, as I mentioned, I just have found it extremely valuable to, um, you know, if needed, I do think that we're all interconnected. And I think that there's a lot more support for us uh, in, I, you know, I don't know how to frame it, but it, just that there's more support for us than we think there is. And I think that there are, when you start looking at these esoteric or intuitive arts things, like there is something there and it's kind of like the universe is alive and in conversation with you all the time. If with a symbolic language that you kind of have to learn, but I think um, becoming tuned into that has significantly changed my life. You know, I feel like I'm in conversation with the universe and it's, it feels good and it feels better than before when I wasn't. So I find it very helpful. Um, you know, and, and also this just idea that, uh, you know, um, that young Carl Jung and many others have, have talked about of like, you know, our internal, internal world resonating with the external, the external world and vice versa. Um, and kind of looking at that as hints of, what's going on or where you are, if that makes sense. So kind of paying attention to the things that happen in your life um, or in your body um, and thinking about the deeper meaning of those things. So I've just, it's added a whole beautiful dimension to my life and a lot of support, I think, and a lot of resiliency tools, I would say. Like, I feel like I have a lot more tools to better engage <laughs> with life. So it's been great. It's spurred this um, kind of desire to engage more with neuroscientists, but other scholars and help bring them together. So um, some of that has been, as I mentioned, the social and this retreat coming up, which are a little more academic, but we are exploring, my collaborator and I are exploring ways um, that we could, I don't know, scale this in some way. Um, and yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I, I was before this, before the book came out, I had already left academia. I just wasn't really interested in, you know, publishing papers that no one would read and writing grants all day. And I don't even like doing hands-on research, like brain scans. I don't like doing that anymore. So I had already moved away from that, but um, I write a newsletter on psychedelics and altered states of consciousness. Um, and yeah, just try to engage with, people who have similar, you know, curiosity. Oh, that's wonderful. Is there anything else you want to share today about science and spirituality? I think we'll see. I think we will see. I think we're starting to see, and we will see more of a shift happening. Um, 
you know, the reasons for that are many, <laughs> there's many reasons for that, but, um, I think we're starting to see a shift. And I think that the most important thing, at least for me, what I've learned on the journey is to just stay open and stay curious. I have, you know, I remind myself, stay radically curious because it's not like you one time decide that you're going to stay open-minded and then you are, you know, that never happens. It's like you have to keep trying because you'll find some belief that you gravitate towards and you're like, this is it. I figured it out. Um, but I don't, I don't want to do that anymore because I already tried that and it was, it didn't serve me. So, um, you know, I just keep reminding myself to stay radically curious. And when somebody presents a viewpoint that's not in line with yours, you know, instead of just thinking they're wrong, um, I try to ask myself and them, I'm interested in your experience. You know, how did you come to this belief or how did you come to this line of thinking? Stay radically curious. Absolutely. Mona, it has been such a pleasure to have you on New Thinking Aloud, and thank you for all of the work that you're doing and the ways that you're inspiring colleagues and people in the world. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. 